Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Tuesday, March the 8th was International Women's Day, so to extend the celebration of women, today we are focusing on issues that are of particular interest to many Australian working women. Have you seen the poster that says you should give your girl children 86 cents for every $1 you give the boy children for pocket money so that they can get used to the real world? The issue of pay equivalence continues to dog Australian workplaces. However, the issue of equality at work is more than about equal wages. So there are two key issues here. The first is that mothers are, of course, women, and we know that there is a gender disparity in the workforce with women being underrepresented in management positions and overrepresented in part-time positions and experiencing a 24% gender pay gap. But there's an added complexity for mothers in that an increasing number of women return to work within the first year of their baby's life, so 22% within the first six months and 44% within the 12 months. And this is during a time when health authorities recommend a baby is breastfed. Women are more than capable, of course, of combining work and breastfeeding. However, often they don't feel supported to, which can result in many women choosing to delay their return to work, reducing their working hours or leaving their jobs altogether. The gap between public health recommendations and working conditions in Australia presents a barrier to returning to work. That's the voice of Rebecca Naylor, CEO of the Australian Breastfeeding Association. The association has pointed out that Australia has slipped from 15th place in the global gender gap to a low of 36th behind Belarus. What they are talking about is the fact that three quarters of working women are in part-time employment, that 25% of women permanently leave their jobs before giving birth, and only 6% return to work in the first year. These figures bring into question how workplaces plan for this inevitable and necessary stage in people's lives. I spoke to Sally Shepherdson about her personal experience of successfully returning to work while still being able to maintain breast milk feeding because of the support plan within her workplace. I have two children. Um, They're now aged four and six. Um, When I became pregnant with my um, son, who's now six, I had to balance um, a lot of things as I was contemplating how I was going to take a break from the workforce. I was quite fortunate that um, my workplace actually provided parenting rooms That helped me plan to be able to come back to work at a time that I felt fitted me, which in my case was um, when my son was four and a half months old. What's a parenting room? Tell me about a parenting room. It's like a a small meeting room that doesn't have any glass in it, so no one can look in. And it has um, a reclining chair and um, a sink and a refrigerator and a microwave. Um, it also has nappy changing um, facilities as well if anyone happens to be bringing children into the office. But what that actually allowed me to do was I came back to work, as it turns out, when both of my children were about four and a half months old. And it meant that in, in that room I had a nice comfortable chair to sit in while I expressed milk throughout the day while I was at work. And then I could pop it in the refrigerator in that room and then on my way home on my way out from work each night I could grab the milk take it home with me and then uh, my husband could then feed that milk to you know to each of my babies um, while I was at work the next day so that that meant that I could 
come back to work and um, and still have my children breastfed. Yeah, and it's a very simple process. Um, what kind of work do you do? Um, my um, role is um, Head of Strategic Initiatives for um, Leveraged, which is part of Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. So it's a you know, man- managerial role. Um, and you know, it involves me being in the office, actually liaising with people, but you know, and, and, and helping to um, set the strategic direction for the business. Now, I remember going uh, years ago. Uh, in I was working in the country, and they had a uh, session for uh, women to go and uh, express themselves regarding uh, issues within their workplace. Mm-hmm. And one of the most telling things that was important to uh, young women, you know, like uh, in their 20s, going into their 30s, was that they were ambitious in their work, their career, mm-hmm. but they also wanted to have their have a family, which is quite a natural and ordinary thing that society would expect mm-hmm. uh, and needs, but that they were being put forced into a situation where they had to sacrifice their career for what is an absolutely natural and ordinary thing to do, but which also only takes up a certain amount of your life. Oh, absolutely. And like I, I was actually um, quite fortunate that I was actually, um, while I was pregnant um, with my with my son, uh, I was being considered for a fairly significant promotion um, while I was pregnant with him. And I, um, because I had a plan on how I was actually going to return to work um, within a time frame that that I was happy with, um, which you know, meant that I was going to take about a total of um, five months off work. Uh, I actually was successful in getting that promotion when when I was seven months pregnant with my son. Yeah, it, it meant that I didn't need to sacrifice like yeah, my personal ambition um, for yeah, being able to take time out of the workforce um, to to have um, my children, and um, it also meant that I could still breastfeed them, which had benefits um, for my employers as well, because it meant that because I was fortunate that I could breastfeed and because I could continue to breastfeed through that period of time. Um, my you know, children really didn't get sick, so um, even though I'd, um, I'd made plans with them that would allow me to be able to work from home um, if I needed to in you know, the, in the first year, you know, year or two of their lives, I didn't end up needing to do so because they, they didn't get sick. In my experience, um, it, 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 it worked well for me and, and worked well for my family. Society's uh, view on uh, a, a woman's role being at home when uh, children are young and uh, that women should be prepared to sacrifice their careers. Is there a balance, uh, uh, that uh, a battle going on that you perceive? Oh, look, I think, I think there, definitely, um, there definitely is um, a bit, a bit of, little bit of a battle there. Um, for me, it was something that um, I, I never really thought twice about. I'd, I'd worked hard at school and then worked hard at university and had worked hard in my you know, jobs and I had you know, never considered anything other than um, being, um, you know, being a, you know, a, you know, a career woman, you know, for, want, for want of a better word. And um, yeah, from from very early on um, in um, relationship with my husband, we'd already, you know, we'd always talked about how I would be better off, you know, better suited for um, being in the workplace, and um, he might be better suited for being um, being a stay-at-home dad. And so, you know, that was always fairly natural for me. But I'm at least a third-generation um, working mother. I know my mother, you know, put me into you know, childcare when I was um, only a couple of months old because that was something she needed to do. She also had returned to work while breastfeeding. 
but she wasn't as fortunate as I've been with the facilities that I've had to be able to return to work. So I think she had to actually um, express in the corner of the staff room, whereas I've been fortunate to come back to work with having you know, good facilities to be able to do that. So for me, it was it was something that I always considered that I wanted to do. But definitely, you know, in conversations with um, some of my friends, it's um, it's quite a quite a challenge. Um, whether when they've you know they've invested a lot of time in their their education because um, you know girls you know do tend to outperform um, boys at school and um, women are graduating from university courses at a at a higher rate than than men are uh, uh, generally um, yet. Um, as soon as it comes to the point when people are actually having children, there does seem to be, uh, you know, these people you know, going back to these you know, norms of um, the woman being the one staying at home and and the father being um, the one in the workplace. And you know, for, for some for some families, um, that's not necessarily the best outcome for either the mother or the father because, you know, certainly in in our experience, my father, my husband's had a fantastic experience being. Um, that being the parent that's been um, the one that's been predominantly at home. Yeah. Um, so, and the, and the mm. thing about it is, that's interesting to me is that it's actually predictable. This is a predictable mm. social-wide uh, phenomenon. Therefore, mm. it can be factored in. Now, you obviously your workplace factors it in. So, how did that come about? Oh, look, I, um, it's it, it's something my workplace um, had had plans in place. Um, long before I'd even um, considered um, starting a family, so I was fortunate that you know, my workplace had already signed up to the Australian Breastfeeding Association's Breastfeeding Friendly Workplace Program. So they, they, had, they had factored it in, um, providing um, suitable places for um, women to, to express. Um, that also um, it provided um, entitlements such as paid lactation breaks, um, and you know, and had, had also. Um, yeah, as I was actually planning on going um, on you know, maternity leave, I think I might have touched on this earlier, they you know, also you know, switched over um, to me having a laptop instead of um, a PC and also um, gave me a work phone so that I could access my work emails, um, which just gave me a little bit more flexibility so that um, if I needed to leave early and I had, had some things um, that um, you know, I still wanted to um, to work on, um, I, I had I had those tools, so um, my, my workplace really had fact, factored in um, a lot of the things that would help um, set me for, up for success to be able to come back to work and you know to do so without with, with minimal disruption to the workplace, and and, and that that works quite well. Just having just simple things like you know, like a nice private room to be able to you know, feed and and setting it up with a fridge. Mm. Um, so that you know you didn't have to have the embarrassment of popping your breast milk in the you know, communal fridge in um, in you know, your lunchroom or something like that. So or having someone use it. Oh yes, which is even creepier. I I have I've heard of stories like that. So yeah, just yeah, some just little things like that. So I didn't even have to think twice about it. Um, I I knew that I was going to have that support around me, and it was also important in the, in the lead up to me going on maternity leave, having conversations with my colleagues. Because um, the um, all of my direct reports mail, and so um, yeah, at least we you know we had good rapport with each other. But we could actually talk about what I was going to do when I came back to work, and that I was planning on to continuing to breastfeed. And I would just you know pop out, and I'd you know, I'd set aside time in my calendar to go and express, and 
that we just work out meetings around that and it, it all worked. Yeah, and I mean, even though if people do uh, work in teams and, the, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is that it's collaborative, workplaces can be very competitive. I mean, if you think about the alternative to what's happened to you is that you could have years of your career stymied and you'd have to, a bit like Monopoly, go to jail, do not, you know, pass go, do not get $200, <laughs> that mm. sort of thing. Yeah, and look, I, I think yeah, you do you do hear stories of that. I know when I, you know, when I look at, when I look at my own parents' group, so they um, like you know, traditionally called mothers' groups, but you know we called it parents' group because um, my well, husband became active. Yeah, yes. that's right. <laughs> yes. So um, when I look at you know parents' group, I was um, the only woman who managed to return to work as quickly as I did. Some of them have you know returned to work later on without having as many um, barriers in their careers, but some of them have suffered potentially not being considered for as, as many promotions because they had. Um, much larger interruptions to their careers. So sometimes that's suitable yeah, for some people. Some people um, are quite prepared to take a significant break um, from the workforce and it isn't something that is a concern for them. For me, it wasn't something that I wanted, that I wanted to do. I, I really I, I did want to get back to work. Um, it's part of who I am. It's, you know, so it's, you know, it's part of my own identity and I didn't want to spend you know, a year or year or longer at home with kids. I absolutely love my kids, but um, I, I needed the um, you know, mental rigour of, of going to work. And so by being able to go back when it felt right for me, I'm fairly comfortable that it hasn't impacted um, my career. But I um, you know, can definitely see um, you know, some, some people who do have those breaks. Yeah, it, it is hard because I think it's you know, when people are in their you know, 30s when you can have significant promotions and um, yeah, that can, can set up your you know, career for the rest of the rest of your time in your workforce. So I, I can see how not be, not being able to return to work when it felt right for you and for your employers could could be a challenge. I just you know, really encourage workplaces to consider um, making. Yeah, consider having a look at the Australian Breastfeeding Association's Breastfeeding Friendly Workplace Program so that they can actually help um, plan to set up their, their female employees um, for success um, because actually you know, provide, providing those facilities um, do more than just actually help their um, staff get back to work um, on their own terms. Um, but they, they you know, really do also actually help Help to make your employees even you know more more dedicated and you know, committed and loyal because they're grateful that um, the workplace has valued them enough to provide those facilities. So I, I really encourage any workplaces that aren't already part of the program to um, to consider taking it up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. You're on Stick Together, Union News and Worker Stories. You might have heard that superannuation is being used as a political football in the halls of power in Canberra. Last month, it was suggested that low-paid workers could get a pay rise if they received this compulsory super payment in their pay packet instead of having any super when they retired. 3CR's Ayushawara Sudarshan spoke to Jed Carney, ACTU president, about why this is such a bad idea for low-paid workers 
the majority of who are women already struggling in retirement. Superannuation was established to complement the aged pension, to make sure that people didn't have to rely solely on the aged pension in their retirement. And the best way to have a very healthy superannuation account is to start as early as you possibly can. Now, there's been a proposal that um, low-paid workers uh, should be able to opt out of having to put money into their super. At the moment, it's compulsory. And a proposal that's been floated, which we think is just crazy and sounds a bit like a thought bubble Mm. to us, is that if you are low-paid, then you opt out of putting money into your superannuation. And this is being touted as, oh, isn't this great? This will be a pay rise for low-income people. But if you actually stop and think about this proposal, it's probably the very worst thing that you could do for people on low incomes. Doesn't this move affect the federal budget in the long term? Of course it does. So if more people uh, have, uh, well, if people don't have money in their superannuation accounts, more people will rely fully on the aged pension, Mm. which ultimately the government has to fund. Now, a pension is an important part of our social protection floor and, and the pension should be there, but the fewer people that rely on the pension and that have superannuation accounts that are relatively healthy then the less pressure there is on the federal budget and that money can be spent on other things like health and education. Just for our listeners, low-income workers are anybody under the bracket of thirty-seven dollars to $40,000 a year who earn that much. And um, so Barnaby Joyce comes out and says that low-income um, earners should use the money to invest in assets such as a house. What, what is it? I mean, I can't even, I don't even know what to say to that. A 9.5% pay rise for low-income workers would be fantastic. Mm. I, I can't uh, disagree with that. But you do, we shouldn't be funding that through taking away money yeah. from what will guarantee them a dignified retirement. Now, the people out there that are calling for this are quite possibly the very same people that are saying, well, let's get rid of penalty rates, lower the minimum wage. If you really want to improve low-income earners' ability to save or consume, then raise the minimum wage. Don't talk about things like cutting penalty rates. What we really should be doing is making sure that people have decent wages that gives them a decent living, uh, that they don't have to rely on part-time and casual work. Let's make sure that they can get into full-time work so that when they're sick, they can actually get access to pay or if they want a holiday, they can get a paid holiday. This idea that we just take away from their retirement savings is, is really crazy. They've put it in such a way, if I may use the word, twisted the words in such a way that obviously low-income workers are going to think, oh, fantastic, we can get all our money now instead of putting it into super. I mean, especially if you're a 23 or a 24-year-old who's just started working, who's working part-time or casual, who'd love more money in hand, not thinking that, you know, it's now, if you start now is when a retirement policy will even take shape. You know, that is so true. You know, they talk about it in terms of a windfall. This Mm. would be a windfall. Um, It would be a disaster, really, in the long run. So let's just look at the superannuation system and the problems there are with it right now. At the moment, the concessions, there are massive tax breaks, Mm -hmm. if you like, go to people with very high amounts of money in their superannuation account. Mm. Now, these people are very wealthy. They will never, ever need to rely on the pension. They will always be able to afford to retire comfortably, but they are using our superannuation system to hide from paying tax. Now, if we fix that, if we actually change the taxation system so that the people at the 
with very high balance accounts paid more tax and the people with low balances in their superannuation paid less tax, mm-hmm. then we would actually be able to support people to get the low-paid people to get a more money mm-hmm. in their superannuation accounts. And the government would have a bit of income to actually make sure that you know, low-income earners actually get um, some decent benefits out of the state. I think this move that the government thinks is deciding to make also reduces the accountability of the employer. Of course it does. So this is part of removing the responsibility of the employer from paying the superannuation mm. guarantee. Yes, they say that, okay, we'll give you a 9% pay rise, but here's what will happen, I guarantee it. The worker gets a 9% pay rise this year. Mm-hmm. Next year when you go and expect a pay rise because the cost of living, et cetera, has gone up. A lot of people will say, well, no, you got a massive pay rise last year. You know, I'm paying you 9.5% more in your pay packet. Mm. I'm not going to give you a massive pay rise this year. I mean, I can just see it happening. And that extra wind, so-called windfall, will be mm. whittled away over time until it won't mean anything. If it goes into your superannuation account, it has to go in there, it has to stay there, it can't be whittled away. There's better ways to make sure that low-income people actually get paid better mm. than, than taking it away from their retirement. It's really it's a shocking thought bubble. I mean, the domino effect of this too means that there's less money in superannuation, which means there's less money to invest in, in uh, infrastructure and the things that superannuation actually put their money into. So mm. it would have quite a dampening effect on the economy. There'd be less jobs. Uh, less investment, it would just, the, the, the roll-on effect is actually quite mind-boggling. Most people see it for what it is, is a, a bit of a crazy idea, really, and we're hoping that um, industry groups or sensible industry groups actually mm. come out and say, don't do it. Yeah, um, but I just want to, like, you were talking about um, this whole, uh, you know, high-income uh, workers and the tax they pay and stuff. Wasn't there this uh, thing last year where, I, I can't remember, I think it was Industry Super or something, who were trying to boost for low-income workers to get a super reform, where there would be, if if I remember, it was a $5,000 push or a boost where the low-income workers would get that into their super account? Actually, that's true. Now, there's two things that uh, I should mention. Thank you. You've prompted me my memory. Is that, yes, that was a proposal that would be actually incredibly useful because as we know compounding interest Mm. uh, is what really boosts um, a savings account so if you can actually give low-income earners a really good start by giving them a decent amount a decent sort of seeding amount uh, then the the roll-on effect of that is really quite significant that's one thing but the other thing is that Currently, we have what's called the low-income superannuation contribution, which Mm -hmm. means um, people earning below a certain amount of money uh, don't have to pay tax on their superannuation at all. So they get a refund on the tax they pay on their superannuation. Mm -hmm. Uh, This current government has decided to scrap that. So by 2017, that will actually be gone. So we're getting very double messages, if you like, from the Mm. government. On the one hand, they're saying, oh, yes, we're very worried about low-income people. On the other hand, they're saying, well, we don't care about you too much um, because we're not going to give you this tax break on any super you do pay. So it's really hard to understand what their policy position is on this. Yeah, it almost seems like they're saying, oh, well, I mean, you're, you're part of Australian society, so I might say something about you, but you don't really matter as much because the, <laughs> right. the, it's the larger corporation I'm worried about. That's right, absolutely. And really, this is all about them getting some um, income, I think, into their bottom line. But 
at the end of the day, I hope sense will prevail and that uh, enough voices get out there and say, don't do this. So thanks very much for raising it as an issue on the show. It's really important. Yeah, thank you so much. I think especially as, um, you know, 25, 26-year-olds who are all working really hard, trying to get full-time jobs, but still doing a lot of casual work, it's it's very important that we understand what super means and how it affects us. As I mean, at 25, you're not thinking of retirement because you think, oh man, that's 40 years away, but um, <laughs> you have to start somewhere. <laughs> you really have to start somewhere. That's right. Um, I you just, certainly do. And Trade unions are really fighting very, very hard for people in precarious casual work to make sure that um, they can get access to things like sick pay, holiday pay, and that they don't lose penalty rates. Those things would make a big difference, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is my final question. Um, I just want to know, how do women suffer more because of this move? Well, women are already what we would say, under superannuated. They retire with a lot less than men do. Mm. And also women are in lower paid, um, casual employment. They are really very much overrepresented in the low income spectrum of work in this country. So any impact, anything that actually further um, erodes their ability to save for their retirement impacts women a lot more than men. So we would see more women retiring in poverty uh, Mm. in old age because they live longer than men too. And uh, also ultimately down the the track, I think that uh, policies like this would mean that, you know, they lose out on pay rises over time so their wages would actually diminish. I mean, you would consider this sort of um, policy if they said, okay, we are going to raise the minimum wage by the same amount and we are going to raise the award wages Mm. by the same amount so that the 9% is actually meaningful, but they will never do that. Mm. There's no suggestion that you would raise the base rate of minimum wage by the same amount. So women will predominantly lose out because they are overrepresented in the demographic that we're talking about. To all our listeners, if there's any way they can help, how can they help and how can they learn more about what is going on and um, what's going to happen? Well, we'd really love them to just have a quick look, if they can, at the Australian Union's website where mm-hmm. we all have information about superannuation and how important it is. And just really make themselves aware of pitfalls. I mean, I haven't really read any sort of, apart from Barnaby Joyce, mm-hmm. I haven't really heard anywhere that this is a great idea. Yeah. So when you're talking to your friends who might think about it, that it's a good idea, just arm yourself with the information. Go mm. to the Australian Union's website and see what you can find out and tell people, talk about it. Nothing more powerful than a conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Jed. Thank you. My pleasure. Goodbye. Bye. That's it for Stick Together. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Rebecca Naylor, Sally Shepherdson, and Jed Carney for talking to us today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time. <laughs>